Hi, everyone. Welcome to the ImpactVest podcast, transformative global innovation in a new era of impact. I'm Aisha Williams, the founder and CEO of ImpactVest. And along with our guest host, we aim to inspire and motivate towards collective positive global impact to solve our world's most pressing challenges in sustainability. With each episode, we will engage in insightful conversations with global change makers, visionaries, and sustainability activists who wish to build a more sustainable and resilient future. Join us now as we create the future of impact. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Michelle Hayward, who is the founder and CEO of Positive Hire. Welcome, Michelle, to our podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited today. Yes, I'm really excited to speak to you. So can you tell us a bit about Positive Hire and your vision behind launching the company? Sure. Positive Hire is our focus is really on connecting Black, Latina, and Indigenous women who are experienced scientists, engineers, and technology professionals to management roles. Yes, I know that's long, but I I say that because it came from my personal experience that I thought was maybe unique. Um, I was a civil engineer. I worked on the construction side, so I was not in a traditional office. I was always on a construction site, whether I was working at a converted shed with poison ivy growing through the floor, or what you may be more familiar with is a is a construction trailer. And in my experience, I wasn't where I wanted to be in my career. And so I started talking to other women that I had gone to college with, that I worked with to see how their careers were going. And most of them were also having the same experience as me. But I found that I had progressed further than many of them. And I, at this point, have been in my career about 15 years. And so the stories I heard was time and time again about these women's difficulties in in being promoted and getting recognized for their work and not being pushed out of technical spaces. So oftentimes they want to do design engineering work and they are being relegated to other non-technical types of work. And so Positive Hire grew out of How do we find the places where we can grow and advance our careers? Henceforth, our mission to connect this specific group of women to management roles. And what do you find is, is, was the main challenge when you uh, were scaling the company at the very beginning? Because uh, what what we're really speaking about is challenging maybe a, a status quo and, and, and saying things have to be done differently. Um, and, and so what were some of the challenges that you faced along the way just in starting out? Starting out, it was pretty much just me and not wanting to bring anybody in or even free help in early on. And so it limited my ability to grow. I have a great group of friends who some of I've never met in person who literally would jump in and just help me do things because they love the mission that we have here at Positive Hire. The other part was organizations believing or stating, not believing, I'll just say stating, that the issue was they couldn't find talent like me. And I would look at them and I would go, well, didn't you hire anybody straight out of college? Like, oh, well, they left or why? Or they left at some. I said, why did they leave? They were like, oh, I'm sure it's to get other opportunities. And so 
them not wanting to address or look at their own internal data, their own practices, policies, and procedures were are still some of the main barriers we have today. Since the murder of George Floyd, there have been a few more companies that are willing to do it and publicly have conversations. But those are the two biggest barriers, long-term and short-term, that I had with, with growing positive hire. And do you find that perspectives have changed now that you're out in the market, uh, you're successful with positive hire. Do you feel like now when you're speaking to clients that there's a different perspective uh, towards the value that they see in hiring? I would say the value they see in positive hire is our ability to find the women and connect with them. What the value I wish they would see is, it's not a recruitment issue, it's a retention issue, meaning they have internal work to do. And so while I'm happy that I get the recognition, we've been contacted, you know, you know, by companies out of the UK to work with their US counterparts because we only work in the US, but the issue still remains. This is not a recruitment issue. This is really a culture issue, which ties back into your ability to retain the talent. I can bring as much talent as you want that are Black, Latina, and Indigenous, but it's up to you to be able to retain them. And that's been the hardest thing to drive across most organizations. Some are really doing the work, um, but most are either very performative or they don't have the support they need, meaning they don't have the right team, they don't have a large enough team, and they are not providing enough financial backing to support them in this initiative. And that's also what we see in many businesses. Well, first, just starting out when you launch a business, you often launch it to solve one issue. And then along the way in the journey, you see that there's another issue actually that is is the underlying issue that you have to solve, right? Um, and it's and it's very similar to what we saw uh, launching our funds, is that even before we can have funds uh, specifically focused on the African continent and emerging and frontier markets. We first had to have a sort of educational layer uh, in, in, in terms of actually speaking about uh, or storytelling about our founders and our companies. Um, so there was an underlying issue that, that we had to look at here it was the perception of risk right and so we said oh well first first we have to actually tell the stories of our companies and our fund managers even before we actually get to the fund and so there are often these underlying issues that start to crop up on on the way to your mission right and so that's that's that that is really interesting i i think especially when we speak about the retention within companies, Black and Latino, Indigenous uh, women. And why do you think that there's such a lack of retention in companies? So what what do you think there is about the culture of those companies that, that lend to that? I'll, I'll start with this example. Systems, we, we talk about systemic oppression and racism here in the U.S., I want to put it into a context wherein it goes to how the organizations not only are created by their practices, policies, and procedures, but the beliefs of the people that are running those organizations. 
oftentimes these women are seen as workers and not leaders, or they'll give them the ability to lead with very little recognition and opportunity. And so until you change people on an individual level, you won't change an organization's practices, policies, and procedures. And so we've seen a lot of organizations start hiring a chief diversity officer since the murder of George Floyd and DEI, diversity and inclusion departments and teams, usually four people at best, one to four, <laughs> right? Um, for, it's four if they're in a 10,000 plus company, it's one person if they're you know a 500 person company, the numbers don't make sense. But what happens is that person or that team is relegated to fixing all of it, or sometimes not even given the opportunity to do it they are limited to only running programs. And so instead of people doing individual work so that they understand how they bought into this system of oppression, they don't. They hand it off like, oh, this is your responsibility. And so when the diversity and inclusion teams come in and they start doing the work, the the leaders, their viewpoints and experiences have never been challenged. Um, they have never done any work to educate themselves and to change. And change is hard, right? But now you have somebody telling you what you're doing wrong and, and they're taking it as, well, then I must, I'm not a bad person. If I'm not a bad person, I can't be a racist. And what we're saying is you've internalized it until you can't see that your belief system are is causing the problem. And that's been the biggest barrier is getting people to do the individual work that do not have a title under diversity and inclusion, but are empowered to do the work, um, that that have the power to make, make this work. That's been a very big issue that we've seen. We've seen some companies at their leader, leadership teams that do the work. I have a great friend. She only works with leaders. Um, and they are all surprised how much unlearning they have to do. Like she works, she's been working with them pre-pandemic, how much work they have to do in unlearning in order to make progress. And literally some of them have now have an awareness. I knew nothing before I started with, with her. And so once they go start going, but this, she she's one person, she has a small team and they are working maybe with a hundred people a year imagine how many thousands or millions of people need to go through the same type of unlearning in order to make change. And that's been the biggest barrier. And so I applaud her for the work she's doing because I need her to do her work in order for me to do my work. Right. That's interesting when we when we speak about the systemic issues that we're facing in all industries, like I was speaking about us, um, focusing on emerging and frontier markets, what we encountered was uh, systemic bias and that that we didn't think that we would um, kind of hit up against that we then had to compensate for and we had to say ah okay but but we have to do a lot more media than than we thought we have, we we have to speak more than we thought because there's a sort of systemic bias here right and then also thinking that we all if you are from a population who's underrepresented, 
you automatically have, know the viewpoint of, uh, or or you can relate to others, right? And so, if you're if you're black, let, let Latino, we we all know about the experience <laughs> being a person of color, right? And so, kind of that system of of unlearning for for those who who aren't is really interesting, right? Because I think if we're going to get to a place where we make real societal changes, then we do have to recognize that all of us have grown up in our own cultural perspectives, and maybe it's a form of educating each other on our own perspectives, right? Because we've all grown grown up kind of seeing the world very, very differently. And for those who have grown up probably not knowing uh, the perspective of uh, someone who's grown up or been in a society that they're a minority in that culture, uh, then it's hard for them or challenging for them to see the other side of that. And so it's a really interesting point that we're getting to now. It's a form of education uh, for each each other, right? Um, there's so many different viewpoints in the world. And if we all are kind of very patient with each other, I think it takes a lot of patience. <laughs> and, if, and if we're very patient and recognizing that we all have blind spots, we have cultural blind spots. And if you're aware of the other person's cultural blind spot and you can fill it because you've had that life experience or they can fill it for you because they've had that life experience, then we'll start to get somewhere in terms of really getting to the root cause of uh, systemic biases here. How do you see it progressing in terms of being able for women uh, and those who are Latino indigenous to be able to see more as leaders within the workplace. We've spoken about the challenges in terms of perspective, but but do you think there are any other uh, changes that have to be made to be able to have that viewpoint uh, while these are hires that are leader? I absolutely do. What we found, especially during the pandemic, was how many people were taking training courses, right? And how they were adding all of these courses onto their LinkedIn. They were getting certificates, whatever it was. And what we've also found is that Black women here in the U.S. often are highly educated. They have several degrees. What happens, though, in the workplace is when women, especially women of color, talk about their work history, their their skills and abilities, their certifications and education, they get a lot of pushback. And so it doesn't help them to verbalize it oftentimes. What we then have done understanding this is created our software wherein it's more skill-based. And what also happens is the women are often given the work that that leader, titled leaders are doing or should be doing, but it's relegated to them without the pay without the acknowledgement, without the job title. And so we create an internal talent marketplace for organizations where these women can capture all of their skills, all of their experiences, work experiences, and their abilities. And so now when organizations go through and say, and look for internal talent to fill specifically for us um, new infrastructure or construction projects, they're looking for skills only. They're not looking at resumes. They're not looking at degrees. And this 
puts the women in their organizations at an advantage because they can't, they, they get so much pushback verbally when they do it, when they verbalize rather their experiences. Instead, they're, they're most often like they're adding it on LinkedIn. They're more likely will add it to internally all of these things are done. Organizations are still using resumes. A resume at best is two pages, unless you're a, you're a PhD and you're doing a CV or something, but it's usually two pages. Now we're giving them the ability to add all of this information. An organization now said five to seven skills they need to fill a role. It is going to match and help way more women in the workplace get opportunities and keep them employed as well. And that's why we switched and how we approach the problem is focus more on retention of the talent that's already there and focus more on doing a skill set matching for organizations based on the needs they have for infrastructure projects, because that's really where we're headed in the U.S., especially with climate change, is really building and updating the U.S.'s current infrastructure. And I think that by matching the company's needs to um, skills that women want want to be able to acquire, I think the retention rate should increase from, from there, right? Um, and where do you see yourself scaling with positive hire and going into different avenues, um, different business models? Because that's what we do as founders. We start to see all of the different opportunities and sometimes you have to slow ourselves down, right? <laughs> um, so for me, so I, I said early on, I was a civil engineer. I built the power grid. One of the roles I had was a construction engineer. And it's like, oh my God, that's so much, that sounds really great. Like you got to see everything. Being a construction engineer, you push more paper on a, on a project than anything else. And I had all of these documents and hard copies. So they were printed out. A lot of times they were signed off or they had handwritten notes on them. And I was a hub of knowledge right? When you're a construction engineer, there's a problem coming in. I'm looking for a solution, whether it's how to fix something with concrete, with steel or something else. And so what happens now as we move forward in infrastructure is you have a smaller number of talent available because baby boomers are retiring. And how do we now solve problems faster? And so historically, that information is only shared outside of that project at best once that project's over. So what we're building in, because we're focused on this industry, is also taking internal knowledge on projects. Instead of it being historical data, it is live data on how, what are the existing problems, what was the solution, and being able to share, share it across an organization much faster than two years or four years, you can get it in a few days. And so if you're having a similar problem um, and, and just get really nerdy, it's a, geo, it's, a, it's, a, it's a geotechnical problem, meaning it's the dirt or the rock that you're hitting, the soil type. And how did another team solve it? Because technically, I would have to submit paperwork or document to the geotechnical engineer who have to look at it and they have to figure out oh, this is what, try this. Then we go test, like that didn't work. We're coming back. What's the next solution you think that will work? 
right? And so how do we cut down that back and forth? And so for us, it is really not just taking what's going on the construction side, but also what's going on in the engineering design side collecting all of that data so that we now are able to solve problems a whole lot quicker. And so that's where we're going also because that talent and experience is getting all of that knowledge and to retain that knowledge, having a knowledge base within your organization. And a lot of companies have started, right, doing a knowledge base, especially in the early 2000s. I worked uh, for an electrical equipment manufacturer and they had this one guy, his name was Tom. And I remember this as a 2004. Tom literally spent his day taking a piece of, of um, some type of device that had been manufactured by the company and would write up the, the, what it was used for, how to install it or remove it, repair it. That's all he did before he, he was like three to five years from retirement. But he knew so much about that information. And that was his job until he retired. But how do you capture that knowledge once people are gone and somebody calls in like, hey, you built this eight years ago or 28 years ago? How do we fix it? And we're like, we don't know. Everybody's retired at best. Right. And so we're really trying to capture that data and making it available and using AI really around to help solve the problems a whole lot quicker. I think being being able to capture that data is a really incredible business model for the future of your business, right? And honestly, for all sectors to be able to use AI to capture data, build predictive models, there there's so much great potential here. It, and, it's, and it's the same in venture capital, especially when we're speaking about emerging and venture markets, uh, since there's such a gap in data, right? So so that's the next frontier here. And it's good to hear that there's an industry that has more paperwork than we have here in VC. <laughs> and I know my colleagues will agree with me listening here. So so definitely when there's an industry with a lot of paperwork, there are many opportunities to centralize it to be able to use AI, um, to use different different models that you to not be so dependent on uh, those who who built the models and may leave the company and no one knows what to do with it. Right? So uh, what are some other things on the horizon that you see in terms of diversity and inclusion? Um, there are many, many challenges still in terms of systemic challenges, but what do you see in terms of the main topics that we still have to tackle in terms of systemic challenges in uh, your company and just across the sector in, in general when you're speaking with clients and companies? I would say the additional challenges, and, and we focus at the intersection here at Positive Hire, the intersection of gender and race. We're going to have to go deeper and the challenge becomes around caregiving, whether it's children or parents or other family members. And then from the, also at the same time, that goes into ageism. And so everybody, they're like, ageism starts around 40. In tech, they're saying it starts around 35. So imagine now baby boomers are retired and you want to shrink your talent pool even smaller by, by ageism and caregiving. I think the big, the next biggest part of diversity, equity, inclusion is reformatting. And we've seen this. The future of work is not the future. The future of work is now. 
and how we're shaping the workplace. And I had a really great conversation with an HR leader in that how they're reshaping construction to be more flexible with its employees, because typically when you're in construction, you have to be on the job site. Well, can you do, you know, a different work schedule? Can you do a four a four ten? So you work four hours a day, ten four days a week, rather ten hours a day, or nine eights, where you have every other Friday off. What does that look like? And really thinking about how to approach where you can give your employees more of what office and sometimes even manufacturing facilities are able to offer to their employees more easily than you are to construction workers construction team. So they're rethinking what does that look like for them? And I love that aspect of it because I worked in the field the entire time. The office team, they could go home like, hold up, well, who's going to be there? We have questions. And they'd be like, that's a good, we didn't have that flexibility. We were the ones that always had to be there. And so the future of work is rethinking and really testing out how do you accommodate and, and provide for your employees, especially on the construction site or different type or oil rigs and, and different types of work environments that are not typical from even fast food to manufacturing that we really have to reshape. And I agree with you. Those are really the areas. It, it is about reshaping narratives, uh, looking at the systemic narrative that we've grown up with, that we believed we've worked in and saying, well, now they have to be reshaped and we and we see the result now. We we have climate change in ESG. We have debates in ESG about what it really means. There is a deeper issue here that maybe we're just not understanding each other, or maybe there needs to be a type of education that we're all teaching each other about each other's perspectives, and we can understand um, our viewpoints better. Right? But there is there's a lot of clashing of opinions at the moment that that we see in the sustainability field and then it goes into DEI as as well. So so there is a lot of work to be done, but I think the deeper underlying issue of tackling systemic narratives that we've all believed to be true and how we see that they have to be reshaped in order for us to go forward and truly build an sustainable and inclusive future because this actually means that we start to become aware of our own blind spots and we start to be really truthful about that if we don't understand where someone is coming from then we say well <laughs> would would you be able to tell me what i'm missing what is my blind spot right and so and so those are kind of the truthful conversations i think that we're having more and more let's say it's five, 10 years from now, right? So where do you see yourself with positive hire? Do you want to expand internationally uh, here in Europe, the UK, Canada, right? So, so where, where do you see yourself with positive hire? That is such, you know, I used to have an answer for this question. I, I would say for us, definitely expansion across the globe. I would prefer to focus in Africa great talent there, a lot of opportunity. And I and also with climate change, who is going to be impacted the most? And so in the US, focusing more on the rural South, that's where you're going to have most Black people and a Hispanic Latino population focusing there and then going across to Africa and then moving South to South America, um, 
Latin America. And so for us, that's where we want to go. We're still focusing very much on our core audience and really what does that look like for them um, when we when we talk about climate change. And so everything, I haven't talked a lot about climate change, but a lot of what, how we're building out PH Balance, which is the talent marketplace software, and then the AI add-on is really about not only retaining that talent, but that talent is needed in order for us to bring solutions to Black, Latino, and Indigenous communities. So that talent has to be there in, in a powerful position so that we are not excluded, we are not ignored, we are not nominalized, like too few to count. Whenever you look at um, Native American data here in the U.S., oh, not enough to count. It's like if it's a person, they matter. So they do count. And so how do we change that and move forward? So it's really important then that we look at some of the, that, that information a little bit differently. So that's really why we're focused on there to make sure those voices are heard and they're counted for as we move further into climate change and we're working on the solutions and combating problems on a regular basis. I'm really inspired by the work that you do. I think expanding into the African continent and into South America, there's so, so much there in terms of there are many talented entrepreneurs. We have many of our founders are from the global South. And when we speak about the worst effects of climate change, it, it, it is in the global south and the opportunities that businesses have to expand there. That is the frontier of impact investing. And when we're speaking about diversity and inclusion uh, to kind of tap into the amazing talent pools that, and entrepreneurs that, that are in the global south, that then what we can bring back to North America and really make a statement in terms of DEI. Absolutely. It has been a pleasure having you on the podcast and a really great conversation. Very important for kind of the times that we are in, uh, reshaping narratives, thinking about uh, systemic challenges that we're facing because it truly is across sectors that we have to start to reshape narratives about what it truly means to be diverse and where these narratives come from and include more voices, the global South, minorities, and, and we all have to be part of the conversation to build the future that we all want to see. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much, Michelle, and we hope to see you on our next podcast and we hope that you come back and join us with more updates. Thank you everyone for listening to the Impact Best podcast, transformative global innovation in a new era of impact. Join us next week for another episode and become part of our Impact Best newsletter community where you will receive all of the latest updates about our work in this new era of innovative impact finance. See you next week as we create the future of finance at Impact Best.